this um glass discussion is going to be interesting. Yeah. And just to fuel you, just to fuel your what the fuck, this is the one thing that I will tell you about my thoughts on the movie before we start recording. Season three. Season three. Season three. Season three. Season three. And welcome to the Slumgullion, America's only podcast. Coming to you live from Hollywood, I'm Scott. Coming to you live from the planet Hoth, he's Jeff. How you doing, Jeff? I need soup. I need... Okay, hi, folks. Yeah, we are back. It's a regular show. We have a guest. Yeah, whoa. Not now, not now. But we do have a guest. We have a fun part two, and we have me fucking off at the end, so wait till you get to that. That's going to be entertaining. I hate to make these invidious comparisons. I feel like you fucked off more entertainingly in the past, including that one that was uh, just turned out to be uh, a power outage. Because that created suspense. Ah, uh, yeah, no, this one was kind. This one was kind of wimpy. I was trying to be nice because I was trying to make a good impression on the guest. Yes, because I think we'd like to have him back. He was, uh, he was a lot of fun. But we have a couple of things to discuss. I want to, I want to throw something out real fast if I can before we get to the big thing. Sure. We both actually saw. Oh, I'll, I'll spoil this much. We're going to get to glass in a minute. Yeah. We're going to get to glass. I think we both saw it on the same day. We did. You saw it in the morning and I saw it in the afternoon. I remember I wasn't going to see Split and then I saw it on your recommendation. And I said, okay, then you go see Glass and I'll wait until you've seen it so we can talk. But as it worked out just with the recording schedule, I had to go and I texted Jeff. I go, have you seen it yet? And by the time he was able to respond, I'd already bought my ticket. It was sitting sitting in the theater so now yeah yeah but we'll get to that we will we will we have i think we have a lot to talk about with this movie and i'm gonna we're gonna tell you right now full spoilers consider this a a new movie crew minus the crew right we we showed i think a certain restraint with the unknown movie challenge but this is this is going to be classic slumgullion just be prepared to have every single thing dissected i will say this much whether you like the film or not i think it deserves dissection (laughs) i love how that Really, that works no matter how you feel. Exactly. That is equally true for both sides. I can completely get behind that. So anyway, the same day that I saw this, I also found once I got home from um, seeing Glass, I wanted a palate cleanser. And that is not a bad thing, but I wanted wanted to watch something different. So I was going through Amazon Prime and I happened to find a movie called Space Clown. Now, um, for those of you who don't know, I I have an unadulterated bromance with with Graham Skipper. And not just because he got me into see Reanimator the musical, but because I really think he's a talented twisted fuck oh i think all those all of the above is true well um space clown shows you exactly what a twisted fuck gram is it is not for everybody oh well when you say that that is like the sound of a rattle in the dry underbrush in the desert <laughs> i accept that because other people have said the same thing oh. 
I will not deny any of the negatives that this film will get, though I have not seen any reviews. I didn't even know the film had been made. The last I heard about it, it was an idea he had. So this is something he wrote and directed or directed? Or... Yes, he wrote, he wrote, produced, directed, filmed, did the sound design, did the costuming, built all the sets, designed the creature, and created film itself. Wow, so he out-Ed Wooded Ed Wood. No, he Graham really did a lot in this film. It's a very, it is a very low budget film, and all I'm going to say is it's kind of bad shit insane. I can believe Not, that. Is is he in it? Yes, he's the star. Okay, good. As a matter of fact, this much I will say: the film begins with a text scrawl explaining this is footage from Graham Skipper's camera that was found after the events. So Graham and his uh, lovely wife Jordan, whom I also kind of know, um, they both play themselves. Mm-hmm. Brian Gillespie, who was also in uh, Reanimator the Musical. What he played? Oh, he played a variety of people. Uh, the boys made a joke about him playing the pussy. Okay. He's a strapping young man. He's also been doing some producing. He's definitely been working since Reanimator. But uh, he's in the film playing an annoying neighbor named Brian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is already way too meta for me, but okay, keep going. Oh, oh. And, and there's a space clown. And that's all I'm going to say. All right. Well, if if this does no more than finally put it into the found footage genre, I think it'll all be worth it. And he will have my thanks. <laughs> like I said, even some of the jokes don't even work for me. But um, what does work is so it's a Mike and Ike movie. Well, that explains more than that lengthy explanation explained. Sorry. Hey, I'm quiet for a lot of part two in this. So I'm talking a lot in part one to make up for it. The universe demands balance. <laughs> but seriously, folks, if you're in the mood for just something kind of rude, kind of raunchy and very, very strange, you have Amazon Prime. I, I am just I'm going to say check out Space Clown. You may be offended. You may be confused. There is one moment in particular where you're going to go, what the fuck is happening? It was funny. Graham said, I, Graham goes, I hope you were high as fuck when you watched. Yeah, and yeah. my response was, no, I like this film with no drugs whatsoever. That being said, when I show it to Walter, we're going to be high as fuck. It's yeah. a lot of fun. Now I've got the theme song from that Charlie commercial stuck in my head. Kind of rude, kind of raunchy. Charlie. Charlie, yes. Anyway, but that was actually, I had, and this is by no means a slam on glass, but I had a lot more fun watching Space Clown than I did watching Glass. Uh, How's that for a segue? That's interesting, but before we segue to that, let's get this out of the way. Oh, yes. We both also saw the first episode. Oh, I of, forgot about this. Of season two of Star Trek Discovery. We now, still have an STD, folks. We do. We still have an STD. It's persistent. Now, okay, real fast. It's tertiary. I, uh, it's, yes. I, we, we, we do have to say, I know, I know a lot of people who absolutely love this show. And considering I like things that a lot of people don't like, please do not think that we are slamming on you in any way, shape, or form. If you like this show, more power to you, yay. That being said, I really kind of fucking hated the episode. Do the orgs like this? I don't know. I, I do not. I believe they do, yes. The orgs like it. I know Brandy. Uh, Brandy absolutely loves it. Okay. She does a, she's actually on a, uh, kind of what's become a fairly well-known podcast about it. So that, so, I mean, I, I know a lot of people who, who, who love it and I kind of, after watching season two, I kind of missed part one. Mm. Mm. Well, I will say this. Did you like Pike? Did you like Pike? Well, I have to weigh it 
by different metrics. I mean, on the one hand, it's the first major series in over 35 years to star an actor named Anson. Very true. So it's got that going for it. And I can't help wondering if his co-workers call him Annie, the way they do the prepubescent Darth Vader in the Star Wars prequels. But uh, I'm told by both Thirsty Girl Twitter and the gay gents I know on Facebook that he's a hunk of hunk of burn in love. So I would, I would, I would. Okay, I accept that. Okay, all right, good. So, so I mean, that's for people who are uh, who are there for that. That that's fantastic. I'm happy for you. But as for titillating my triples, I don't know. Tilly has more of a spunky little sister energy, so she she doesn't really come off as as uh, bangable. To, well, all right, and uh, <laughs> and uh, well, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, Sunequa Martin Green is a lovely, lovely woman. Burnham is a character spends far too much of her time trying to become an anime character through sheer force of will. She's just like, I'm gonna make my eyes big and moist. Since Michelle Yeoh's not on right now, there's not that much in the eye candy department for me. I mean, understood. Oh, speaking of which, real quick, just because I have to say this because this I'm actually looking forward to. I want her series badly. Yes, I was very excited to find out a about series that. about Section 31. About Section 31. Are you fucking kidding me? Give me that. As excited as I am for the uh, Captain Picard. Of series that is going to be coming up. Oh my God, I want this Section 31 series badly. Yeah, a lot of people were were convinced that Star Trek Discovery was actually going to be about Section hey, 31. I threw that out there too. Yeah, that's right, you did. And, and they said, I oh, was one of them. I thought that would have been really fucking cool. Section 31, I mean, just by nature, we're going to get into Deep Space Nine darkness. This is something about Star Trek that we know nothing about. This is a completely uncharted realm. I mean, there may have been some books about Section 31. I know there have been 80 million Star Trek books. I don't know. But for me, this is like a completely uncharted, untapped territory of Star Trek lore. Yeah, and the fact that Michelle Yeoh is going to be headlining. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 just... and her, her delightfully evil character, her deposed empress. You cannot go wrong. No, you're right. The Picard thing, it's entirely nostalgic because I did grow to like the character. I guess, I mean, it is Patrick Stewart, but I also did grow to like the character as it went on. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of interested. I mean, I'm interested to see what they do with them. But this (laughs) Section 31 thing, oh, God, put that in my eye holes now. Exactly. It's not nostalgia. That's, yes, yes. Even though it's a prequel, it's not nostalgic. Mm -hmm. Wow. A prequel that's not based at all in nostalgia. It's a bizarre concept. Oh, please, please let this be the next Deep Space Nine. <laughs> Fingers crossed. But we're not here to talk about that. We are here. We actually were talking about STDs, but we got right. we kind of branched off on Michelle Yolov. And to return to the much more um, interesting tangent, which we won't go to again, as you said, Michelle Yo wasn't in this episode. So, so right. So my fetish for her is, is was underserved. I will, however, state for the record that Spock's mother, Amanda, does have a bit of that Stacy's mom has got it going on vibe. Oh, okay. And thank you for bringing me the the uh, to my big problem. I can say it in three words, four words. I just don't care. Mm -hmm. I am not invested. I feel like I should be invested in this because so many people I know are. But this is like I'm having one of those I don't get it moments. Right. I mean, completely irrespective of the fact that it's that it's poor wanking material. The story seems basically to be Starfleet seems to be annoyed because it's nearly February and the rest of the galaxy hasn't taken down its Christmas lights yet. 
I accept that. Oh, and Burnham is a daddy's girl and is maybe responsible for why Spock stormed out of the house and joined Starfleet. Also, (laughs) I'm sorry. That just makes me laugh. Also, Spock uh, liked to draw Frank Frazetta style fantasy shit. uh, And he was upset because his mother read Lewis Carroll to Burnham. And it was a big issue that changed all their lives. So you can see why Spock and his parents never mentioned it when they were all together in that one episode of the original series. But hell, his parents didn't come to his wedding on Vulcan. So when it comes to healthy intergenerational dynamics, they're basically the family from Shameless. <laughs> and and Shameless is a more interesting show. It really is, and, and frankly, more believable. Since and, and it's real fast. Sorry, but I, I got I have to throw this out there again. I'm going to be one of those people who says that the Orville is still doing better Star Trek than Star Trek is right now. Yes, we haven't gotten it. That's that's piled up in the DVR just. Uh, for various reasons, we have not been able to start it. You're going to be happy. It's been a really good season so far. Okay, good. I agree. It, it feels more Star Trek than this. I am not excited about Picard coming back. That, oh, I know. You don't like Picard. That Picard, is I think... Your is hatred a, of Picard is well for It's legendary, yes. He, he is an enormously well-acted blowhard. <laughs> you see, I freely admit, I freely admit, I cannot argue your points at all for me. It's just, I love Patrick Stewart. This is one of those, I, I will watch it for Patrick Here's the only reason that I even kept on to season one. I didn't even like Data in season one. The only reason I even got to season two in Measure of a Man, which I went, oh, my God, they're doing something good, is because of Patrick Stewart. Yeah, I never liked Data either. I freely admit that my love for the original series is completely irrational and could be demolished by the slightest counterargument because I can't Let that be your last battlefield. It, it would be if I tried to defend the original series on aesthetic grounds. And Just those five words. That, that's all. That's all. That's all. You, like I said, I, I firmly believe that I, I bow down and respect it for what it did for both television and science fiction. And there are five episodes of that show that I think are fucking brilliant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The rest of it I could take or leave, and then there's things like Spock's brain and let that be your last battlefield, which just make me giggle. Oh, well, Spock's brain is 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 classic uh, situation comedy. You know, I actually had – I knew I knew about Spock's brain before I'd ever seen that episode. Oh, did you? True story. When I, I – like I said, I, I can't remember when I found Star Trek. It didn't have the same effect as me as Star Wars. Sorry, guys. I know. I honestly don't remember when I found it, but I remember once I started being a geek and finding out about about these things, I would read up on Star Trek and I'd heard about Spock's brain. I don't think I actually saw that episode until I was like 14 or 15. Oh, oh, prime mockery age. And I was I was a well-versed I was a well-versed geek at that point because I remember I was watching Star Trek and I think it was this one because I did not recognize it at all. And then when the Spock's Brain title came up, I, I lost my shit. I'm like, oh, my God, I finally get to see this thing. It yeah, didn't disappoint. It can't possibly. You, you cannot oversell the stupidity of Spock's Brain, no matter how you try to prepare someone for it. You cannot blunt its impact. It is the Edward episode of Star Trek. It is. Yes, exactly. That's a really good way of putting it. But um, then they do something like Conscience of the King. Right, which I... Which I, is just... I fucking think that that's one of my brilliant episodes. I just... I... Oh... Yeah, it's funny. The, the the bad original series episodes, as much as I find them hilarious, are generally the ones that everybody thinks are bad. I, I, and I also tend to like 
the episodes that most people consider good from the original series. However, Star Trek The Next Generation, the ones that people think are just brilliantly insightful, groundbreaking television that has a lot to say about the human condition, like uh, uh, Nonsense and Gibberish at Tanagra, or whatever the hell that thing was. <laughs> I hate every one of those episodes. I rem- I know exactly the episode that you're talking about. Yeah, Darlock all... and Jalad at Tanagra. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever kind of Italian now, ice Mike, they were named Mike after. Mike came out. I like that episode. I did enjoy that I, one. A lot of people do. A lot of people do, but it just, that one Paul gets Paul Winfield. Paul Winfield played the alien. There's my geek coming out. Yeah, it gets on my last nerve. Anyway, so are we more excited about the possibility of better Star Trek coming or are we going to deal with what we have? Are you, are you going to watch the next episode? Um, I... I almost want to see where the where the red angel thing is going to go, but mm. I'm afraid overall, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, is is my, I, there's Jason Isaacs was my pull, right? And I have no problem with Pike, but he's not as interesting as Jason Isaacs was, both as an actor as a, and as a character. So I don't. There's nothing to keep me watching it right now. That's Ouch. my problem. There's nothing to keep me watching it. Like I said, Section Thirty One. Oh my God! When Michelle Yeoh series starts, that's a that is a must watch. Well, she'll be back on this show. Oh, I know. I'm just saying her show. I, I will probably watch those episodes. I will probably watch. But but I mean, I just the fact that we are getting a show about Section Thirty One. Right. Well, uh, Lorca is a hard act to follow. And I think the show lampshaded that by basically having Pike say, literally come out and say, I'm not Lorca. Yeah. And that, they, they, I, I think that was the right thing to do. I really do. Because you're right, Lorca was such a, whether you liked the reveal or not, Jason Isaacs was fucking amazing in that role. He he was he was magnetic he was he was he was fascinatingly maddeningly difficult to read really intensely. wanted to know what was going on behind those eyes yes he was intensely watchable Anson Mount again just the name screams sex Anson Mount that's like a porn name um, I think I think his friends called him Potsy yes I did yes I did that joke finally finally Man, somebody so- somebody had to do it I knew you weren't going to. I did I said. First show to star an actor named Anson. I was setting you up for a Potsy remark. Oh, well, okay. Point taken. Point taken. My fault. My heads are hung in shame. You said something that I think gets at the heart of why this season may be an uphill slog. And it's the character of Pike. I mean, Anson Mount has a certain amount of charisma as an actor. And he's giving him... He's giving him a sly twinkle in his eye. Yes. But Pike is a standard issue heroic character. I mean... Pike is no... I can't believe I'm saying this, but Pike is no Kirk. Exactly. I was going to say, I think the best thing that happened to that show was when Jeffrey Hunter d- decided not to continue in the role and, and they switched to Shatner, who, for, who, for all of his weirdnesses, it, it is an interestingly quirky actor. And, I, I and, completely agree. I, Kirk, as much as I make fun of, and will continue to make fun of Shatner's acting, Kirk is an, inst- is an instantly watchable character. Yes. And... Pike, less so. Is so, not. Is right. not. But, but again, he, he, he may just be he may just be another one of our substitute captains. I mean, if they just if, if they just decide to switch out the captain every every season, like, like it's the secretary on Murphy Brown, I would kind of like that. Actually, th- there you go. That would that might be interesting. You know, uh, just I, give, Sa- give Saru at least one year in command. Uh, maybe. 
maybe, but I kind of, I actually kind of wish they would just treat that captain's chair like the professor of defense against the dark arts position at Hogwarts. Oh, you know, or the drummer from Spinal Tap. Exactly. It's cursed. Take the job, but you're going to die in some way. <laughs> Actually, that would be that, that. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, I, I, I'm, I will watch at least one more episode, just because I want to try and get it. I really do. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm being a bad geek on this one, mm-hmm. even though the show just isn't working for me. So I'm going to keep trying. But God, give me the Section Thirty One show. Speaking of geek and also of of, of being pissed off, uh, I have to go on a little mini rant. Please do. Okay. All right. All right. So, um, the Spider-Man Far From Home trailer. As we all know, Spider-Man Far From Home takes place after Avengers Endgame. Do we know that? Is there anything in the trailer itself that says, hey, remember when everybody, half of all humanity crumbled to dust? Nobody's talking about that. No, I know. That's my point. This does not take place before. It has been said. Feige himself has said and has been quoted and has been reported. So the the bulk of the internet Marvel fan base knows this. Yeah, but you know what? Ever since, speaking of the the whole J.J. Abrams mystery box, you know, he is not con thing. um, I don't take anything a company says about canon or content, literally, until it's out there and in the hands of the audience to make well, them what they will. I, I who the knows what other, they could say. Here's the anything. only other reason. Here's the only other reason why I I am about ninety nine percent sure this is a truism. It has also been reported by quote unquote reputable fake media news sites that um, Marvel isn't actually happy with them releasing far with Sony releasing Far From Home. Mm-hmm. So shortly after Avengers Endgame because of these trailers and shit like this. Well, that's a legitimate gripe. I I can't say I blame him for that. All I will say is if it is a misdirect, that is awesome. And I sense that would be that would be great. It would make me go ugh. But as of right now, the fact that there is no mention of it at all and everybody is just happy and crappy, that really kind of pissed me off watching that trailer as cool as it was. And yes, I was very happy that, that that they actually showed Mysterio in the helmet. Mm hmm. I was really afraid that it was just going to be Jake Gyllenhaal being Jake Gyllenhaal because, well, he is also a drop of eye candy. Yes, that's uh, uh, even I can see that. So I was wondering if they were actually going to give him the helmet. So just the fact that we saw it in the trailer gives me hope that we're going to see full helmet a lot. Well, we're going to see it whenever there's a CGI sequence. At the very least. It just negates everything. Right, but we don't. we still don't know anything. First okay. of all, in a trailer... Who who knows what they talk about in the movie? A trailer is just the sizzle. You have no idea what the steak is going to taste like. And for another thing, you kind of have a point because this confirms my own theory, which is that the universe is going to get a hard reboot in Endgame. And, oh, yeah. And everyone who is dead is going to come back. Except for, what's his name, uh, Drax. Right. I'll be surprised if he comes back. Oh, because he's been uh, shit-talking... Uh, Marvel in social media. Disney. Yeah, yeah. Disney. Yeah, yeah. I know what happens when you piss off the mouse. Yeah, yeah. Fair point. And then a lot of the people who didn't die, who survived uh, the first half of the movie and whose contracts have expired, will get a chance to die. But with there being a cold reboot, people are just aren't going to remember that it happened, except for a, a select few who were involved in in 
pressing the power button. I kind of hope they go that route, but part of me, this is the cynical part of me, thinks that they just don't care and that's not even going to be addressed and it's just going to be like, but okay, things are fine now. See, I don't, I don't think they have that option simply because how do you come back from that? If half of everyone you know died and, and, and the world was just this, this vacant monument to loss for all the survivors, how do you go back to taking names at Starbucks? That is a very valid point. And I am not saying that this is a very valid argument, but I can see this argument being used. It's based on a comic book. And so, it's weird. Fair, the thing about that and, argument is sometimes it's pure condescending dismissal, and sometimes it's absolutely the right thing to say. That's what yes. I hate about that argument. Yes, it, is, yes. it is equally valid and bullshit at the same time. It is Schrodinger's argument. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is in the comic, like it, life kind of went on pretty quickly after everything came back. And I truly don't remember if in the original comic, if people's minds got wiped. I, I don't remember if it was like, well, a then maybe your mind got itself. wiped, Jeff. Did you think of that? Oh, don't mess with my head. I, I, I still have dreams about flashy things. But all I'm going to say, it's, 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 I hope I'm wrong. I really do. But I just have this. Uh, it just it just feels like, well, in that one 30 seconds, totally negated um, Tom Holland's powerful acting in the prolonged useless death scene. Th- that was inevitable. That was going to happen. I, no I, I know. But the fact that it was officially done in a trailer, it just kind of annoys me. Sure. Which, no, but I but that. I'm, anno- I'm annoyed by this whole thing. As, as 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 is well known, my grumpy McGrump nuts about this whole Infinity War thing is quite well known. Two movies, my, two individual movies, my ass. Yes, no, this 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 is your own personal struggle to the death with the whole concept of two scoops of raisins. <laughs> I will stand on this mountain forever on that. But anyway, I just want to say that was just another little thing that that that, that pissed me off. But on to glass. All right, on to glass. So let me. Start with my thesis statement. M. Night Shyamalan took Unbreakable and he broke it. <laughs> okay. What, what's your feeling? Thesis statement. Hmm. Okay. I, I can, I will, I will uh, counter your thesis statements. All right. M. Night Shyamalan took Unbreakable and he bent it. Until it screamed. I don't think it screamed. I think it went ouchie. Maybe it was me. I heard screaming. It could have <laughs> that, was prob- that was probably you. All right. All right. Now, now, now before, um, let's like, like, okay, before we get into the ending. Well, actually, okay, wait, wait. First off, here is, here is our non-spoiler review. I liked it. Mine is, I was quite disappointed. Okay, now that is the official spoiler warning. <laughs> uh, go until I don't know. We're done. You'll figure it out. Okay, so um, my my big question: What did you think at the beginning? Or I should say, Act One, the hunt. Right. I thought the, the most startling thing was the the kid from the first movie uh, <laughs> is actually pretty good looking. So so not every kid from an M. Night Shyamalan movie, grows up to be very quirky in his appearance. Uh, (laughs) Although he still has, he still has those huge, those huge irises that take, that show almost no white 
he, he always looks like he's getting possessed by something. Yes, yes, yes. Which I think is why he hasn't had a bigger uh, career because he can act and uh, he's he's a pretty good looking guy, but he's just got those weird eyes. They're kind of off-putting. He needs uh, to do some Italian horror films. I, I will say this. It looked like crap, much of it. And we can argue about the decay of Shyamalan as a storyteller in a visual medium, but just to pluck one glaring example, compare the rich painterly textural images in the sixth sense to glass in which so much of the footage is shot through a security camera that there came a point in the middle of the movie where I thought I should be getting minimum wage for watching this. They should furnish me a poly cotton blend uniform and some donuts. If I'm going to sit on my ass and watch these, uh, these video feeds. It's not a good-looking film, and as, a, as a, a friend of mine mentioned on Facebook, it looks startlingly cheap. Why wouldn't they have given... I mean, I understand that why um, Split did, and why he was able to make it in the first place, because he was basically over as a filmmaker. So right. Like, well, how about if I shoot it in a bunch of rooms and we'll say it's underground? Okay, sure. But this, I'm surprised they didn't give him a little more money. I, I guess if they did, it all went to the cast, which were spectacularly wasted, by the way, if you're, if you're going to take Samuel L. Jackson, one of the most dynamic actors now working, and cast him in a role which calls for him to be catatonic in a wheelchair for 50% of your movie, I'm thinking I'm not going to give you my investment dollars because you don't have a good sense of what a good investment is. <laughs> See, uh, now, what, what's, what's, what's weird... <clears throat> What's really weird is I've been, like I said, I've been doing a lot of uh, review reading since I saw the film. Oh, and real fast, uh, a little bit of context. I really could care either less about the original Unbreakable. I've seen it twice. I didn't think it was good. I didn't think it was bad. I was just kind of like, meh. So like I said, Split, I just entirely love. Just I didn't even care about its connection to Unbreakable. I thought that was kind of neat. But I just love Split as a movie itself. Well, you're okay. not allowed to not love Unbreakable, considering how much time the movie spends lifting clips from it, just generally referencing it as, as the foundational backstory for everything and all things. It is the primor- primordial soup from which the, this movie rises. And it's illegal for you not to love it and to have committed it to memory. Uh, well, I, I will accept my my jail time in due diligence. So I'm coming at this from kind of like, okay, I like Split. I, I knew this. So okay, let's see where we'll go with this. And I kind of agree with you about how the about the shabbiness of 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 the beginning. Uh, what I like, I can't even say I like. This is going to sound really weird. And it's the, and what's really funny is jumping ahead. It's the part that you hate the most is what I like most about the film was, in fact, the ending. The whole the, the first act to me was exactly what Unbreakable fans wanted. Mm, yeah, yeah, I can see it that. was it was done hunting down, done hunting down the beast. This that was this is what OK, Shyamalan was saying, OK, this is what you guys wanted here it is, but instead of it being the whole film, I'm just going to give I'm going to give it to you as the beginning of the film because there's more shit to tell. And I told you in a text that um, I thought part two was a bit of a slog. Yeah, it turned out there wasn't more to tell, and that uh, really the whole second act is just a community theater production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And 
I dreaded that moment when he caught up with the beast in that factory. As I thought, oh, crap. Are you kidding me? This is when this happens? This is going to be... Well, now I know what Jeff meant when the second he said the second act is going to be a slog. Holy crap. But I, I now, strapped in. The, I strapped uh, in. Yeah. I, was, I was willing to cut it every bit of slack I could. But if you manage to make Sarah Paulson annoying, not character annoying, just annoying. Annoying. That's a unique kind of talent that fortunately not many filmmakers share. Nah, yeah. Now, now, here's my thing on Act Two is like I, I do agree that that is the sequence that a could have been edited better. That there's like whole scenes in that whole sequence. I'm like, why is this here? What is the point of this? For I don't. This could be easily cut. But I actually liked what he was doing with that sequence. The true deconstruction of superheroes, or at least those particular superheroes. I I, I actually liked that sequence as a concept. That's a problem. He put a concept instead of a story on screen. He was so besotted with these archetypes that he had used and crafted and turned to these these heroes that he thinks people love. And he was so besotted with the idea that people will sit for an hour absorbed watching the deconstruction of the whole concept of comic book superheroics and villainy that it never dawned on him that maybe he should have something happen. I only partially agree with that damning statement because I actually, I, I found, I thought the deconstruction, it was what was happening at that point for me. But it was I, like I said, so I would... tedious, isn't it? I mean, haven't we had enough of that? It's not like, it's not like the idea was fresh. I mean, I granted when they did, when he did Unbreakable, it was before Iron Man. It was before the X-Men even. It was before the birth of the superhero cycle as we know it now. And there were some interesting things to be said about comic book archetypes and where they fit into our storytelling tradition, why these myths have, still have currency today. But by this point, you better find something fresh to say about it because it, all you really had to do back then was bring it up. It's like being it's like being a comedian in the sixties. Just say airline food, you'll get a laugh. Nowadays, eh, it's not going to work. You got it. You 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 have to add value, and he didn't. The it, it it's no, nobody cared about his deconstruction of characters that he wasn't bothering to develop. Now, unfortunately, my argument with this, uh, to this, ties into another part that I know that you hate. So, I mean, <laughs> really, we're, we're just going to keep going around in circles on this part because th it ties into the ending because, I mean, there was a very specific reason why that was happening. And what was it in your opinion? No, that was the whole, you know, um, okay, again, full, now we're getting into the, the ending territory here. So once again, full spoilers, just again, warning you now, you know, that was the whole, okay, try to, that was the whole trying not to kill them, trying not to bring in the elite group to murder them. The whole creed of the organization was, you know, any means necessary, but trying to do this. And again, that to me, the way she was trying, it was a very comic book way. So in its own way, there, there was a trope right there, but that with all that deconstruction was her trying to convince them, okay, you are normal, so I'm going to have to kill you. Right. But it was boring to watch. And when you found out the reveal and what it was actually going on, it didn't help. It didn't make it interesting in retrospect. It didn't make that hour fun retroactively. 
You see, now I, you see, you said that hour. I give, I would say 40 minutes for me. I actually enjoyed 40 minutes of that sequence overall. Did you? Yeah, like I said, I mean, when I, like I said, I just like I told, like I said, there were parts that I think could have been trimmed, and there were scenes I didn't even think needed to be in that sequence. But I did enjoy. I was I enjoyed the conversations uh, bet- between those characters. Maybe it's the stage actor in me. I didn't mind the staginess of that sequence. Here's the thing that bothered me: the reveal, as is typical of Shyamalan movies since The Sixth Sense was visible oh roughly a mile away because she's when she comes in and says okay i'm a doctor and i've got three days first of all that sounds like complete bullshit but i've got three days to treat these incredibly complicated dangerous people and cure them and her precautions with the horde are sensible in that he is a dangerous psychopath regardless of whether you think he's bulletproof but when she had all of these expensive, high-pressure nozzles installed yeah. in David Dunn's cell to prove to him that he's actually not a superhero. Okay, lady, why don't you just say, okay, if you're a superhero, knock your way through that door. It's an iron door. Have at it. Oh, wait, if you try and prove my point for me, I will hose you down because I know that's your weakness. Oops, wait, only superheroes have weaknesses to kryptonite what the fuck lady why don't you just walk in carrying a placard that says i have an ulterior agenda it would just be much more to the point (laughs) and now I, i i have to be full disclosure here i think the main reason why i like the ending so much it, it is actually kind of like a, 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 a personal thing. Glass's ultimate plan, the big reveal, the fact that none of this shit can be denied anymore. It has been announced to the world, um, which was his ultimate plan. That is a plot line that I spent eight years doing in a role playing game. I'm sure it made more sense and was more fun there. It may have people told me I, I, it was after like three different games like this. This carried over three different uh, role playing games until I finally got to run with myself to finish the story. Uh, but that was the end of the story. I there's something about just waking people up to the to that to the to. I just find an interesting story or, you know, like the world reaching another stage of thought as a whole. I find that interesting. So it worked for me. This is what Glass was planning from the very fucking beginning. This really irritated me because that doesn't surprise me. The way I read it was, all right, if there are actual superheroes who are awakening in this world, how come we haven't heard anything in 19 years? And the movies in universe answer is because there's this vast secret nefarious organization that for 10,000 years has been keeping the Samsons and the Hercules down and keeping keeping superhumans or, su- or supervillains from clashing and destroying uh, society as, as part. and it, it, what the what the actual answer is well it's because uh, your director writer made a bunch of shitty movies in the meantime everybody hates him and so uh, he was in no position to make a follow up about a uh, movie about superheroes before any went, point prior before you went on the Shyamalan uh, slam i was going to say i know it sounds so comic booky <sighs> <laughs> it's not well yeah it's it's 
comic booky in the sense that it's it's a it's a really convoluted accretion of continuity that causes uh, a company like DC to say, uh, you know what, let's just uh, let's just have a crisis and kill everybody. I, was gonna... <laughs> I mean, I definitely like I, like I even like I said, when I walked out of it, I was kind of like, hmm, okay, I'm. Definitely not what I was expecting. Hmm. All of them dying was a shock. It was a waste. It was an incredible waste because uh, they didn't do enough of the characters to make me feel sad or really any emotion. But the they only also foreclosed ones, the, any any possibility that anything interesting will be done with them in the future. The only place there I agree with you on is I do think that Bruce Willis was totally wasted and I can't believe I'm I can't believe I'm saying this but Bruce Willis was he was you could tell he was actually acting in this film he does that sometimes sometimes he does and he came out for he came out to play for this movie and um it does feel like you know considering it 19 years he was the star of that film he could have given a little more to do than this Considering Samuel L. Jackson's the title character, they could have given him more to do. Now, for that, I... They could have just done more. You know what? As long as we're talking about the end. And yes, all I was thinking was, as I was looking at all these dead bodies, thinking, well, that was a big fucking waste of time. The end of this movie was like one of those choose-your-own-adventure books, except whichever adventure you chose, the book decided you still needed to see all five endings at once. And why... Did our beloved heroes and tragic victims and nefarious villains give their lives so a confusing security camera clip can briefly go viral in the greater Philadelphia area before getting replaced by a better, funnier cat video? Damn. Damn. It's like Sarah Paulson's, no, I've been foiled. There's a YouTube. Yeah, with some... Bad production values and some not great special effects. Nobody's going to look at that and go, fake. What's Aaron Paul up to? I was going to, oh, you stole my joke. You picked the wrong Paul, but you stole my joke. So I will say my last word and then give you the last word since you have more positive things to say. And that way we can go out on a positive note. I will just say this. In the age of the Marvel Universe which Unbreakable, to give it credit, anticipated, and arguably helped advance. Do we get a spectacular third act climax, perhaps featuring a giant spaceship hurtling toward Manhattan or a life and death struggle on a ruined alien planet while the fate of the universe hangs in the balance? No, we get a shirtless gym rat and an old dude in a target rain poncho throwing down at a parking lot which I'm pretty sure you can see after every Eagles home game. On YouTube. On YouTube. And standing in for the widespread devastation of Metropolis or New York, they managed to crack one of those above-ground doughboy pools. Oh, and then our hero drowns in a puddle. The end. And here is my final word. Clotting. I beg your pardon? <laughs> Sorry, cheap joke. Okay. I didn't hate the film. I, 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 most of the reviews are they fucking loved it or they fucking hated it. I was in the meh category. I actually thought the, uh, I thought Shyamalan came up with some interesting ideas. I will agree they just weren't executed great. But I actually liked the ideas in the film more than Scott did. This is a truly a movie where I just I, I like the themes better than I like the execution. 
I don't really disagree with you there. In fact, I think part of the reason I, I dislike the movie more than maybe it deserves is because the disappointment has to do with how interesting the ideas were and, and how he got nowhere near working through them in an interesting way for me. I liked the acting in all of it, except for Sarah Paulson, who, yes, she was, God, that character was annoying. Yeah, I don't blame her. There's, I don't think there's anything you can do with it. I, I have to no. say, I, it was hard for me to get a read on Anna Taylor-Joy in the first movie because she is playing this damaged character who's, right. who, who survives by not signaling her feelings. She played someone who had some kind of therapeutic breakthrough because she was communicating a lot more to the camera mm-hmm. and, and, and in a smaller part. So she had some development. The fact that they killed off the entire main cast, that always makes me happy. There's just something about killing off your the entire cast at the end of a film. And this is a three film journey. So killing off the main characters of three movies when Dunn was drowning, I was actually giggling in shock. I'm like, I can't believe he's fucking doing this. Yeah. Wow. I, I had a similar feeling, although I wasn't giggling. But you know what? I mean, they, they did Rogue One. The whole cast. But for for a movie about heroes, they didn't let anybody go out heroically. Yeah, yeah. Rent it at your own risk. That's what I'd say. That seems fair. De- definitely not not a uh, not a pay in the theaters, but rent it. You might like it. You might hate it. Either way, it's, it's you're going to have a reaction to it. <laughs> yes, it's much like a bee sting in that respect. I could go on, uh, like my explanation on that stuff. There could be a really interesting movie, but the film's just not worth it. Let's let that be the last word. <laughs> And on that note, we'll be right back. It's the unknown movie. Unknown movie. Unknown movie. challenge. It's the unknown movie. Unknown movie. Unknown movie. challenge. It's the unknown movie. Unknown movie. Unknown movie. challenge. That's, That's right. right. It's, it's the, the unknown, unknown movie, movie challenge. challenge. It's the unknown what movie. What we gonna watch? Unknown movie challenge. It's the unknown movie. What we gonna watch? Unknown movie challenge. It's the unknown movie. What we gonna watch? Unknown movie challenge. That's right. It's the unknown movie challenge. Ready for battle. And welcome back. It's time for the Unknown Movie Challenge. And today we, we have, have a guest. We have a guest. Well, thanks for stepping on the surprise. We have a guest. We have a guest, writer and classic heavy metal purveyor, Steve okay. Van, Steve Van Sampson of the famous Dutch Hebrew Nazarites that we all read about in the Old Testament. I'm surprised you knew that, actually. That that's, uh, really did a deep dive. What, we, he is the research junkie of the show. We met Steve on Twitter, I believe, thanks to uh, Larry Blamire. He's uh, Steve's a fellow uh, Larry fan. That's true. He is technically from my backyard. Not my literal backyard, but he is from Massachusetts. How big is your backyard? It's it's uh, very small, not enough room for anyone to really live. Oh, oh gosh. I was gonna, he could have been from your backyard. Okay, you just nipped that in the bud. Way to go, man. You could have said, <laughs> from my backyard, but no, you had it's to just... It's from my off. literal figurative backyard. Oh, I like that. Okay. Steve is the author of a series of books. By the way, real fast, how many of them are there in this series? Just two so far. Okay, all right. But well, what is the name of the book? What is the name of the series? We'll get into that now. Uh, the name of the book is The Bone Eater King, and it is a vampire series set in uh, near-future Africa where the world has basically been annihilated by a plague of monsters that is, they're, they're vampire-like for all intents and purposes. It's a vampire apocalypse. And uh, these are vampires that are, are scary and monstrous and not like the ones you've seen already. And it's set in a place that you don't typically see a vampire set. 
and it is a uh, story about you know this horrible life in Africa, and it stars Africans. And um, I did a lot of research into geography. I'll tell you that. Yeah. So, is there a a, a GM auto assembly plant outside Nairobi? Uh, not that I'm allowed to talk about. Oh, okay, understood. Uh-huh. Yeah, there, no, there, there is. There is uh, that that GM plant is a hundred percent real. And in fact, some of the descriptions I uh, are based on uh, videos I saw that were because this was a really big deal when it opened uh, in Kenya and Nairobi City. A lot of jobs. They were very proud of it. It was a major thing. And the main uh, vehicle they produced is uh, buses in the store. I worked in the buses because it's like, well, th- there would be a lot of them. The the floor and everything, and uh, there's some some parts where I'm describing like paint lines on the ground and like signs and stuff. Then they were just taken from videos that I saw. I was wondering because I was like, wow, this is so specific. I mean, not not just in a <laughs> you're really evoking the scene kind of way, but in a sort of like this seems like something you've seen and. Uh, in a way, I have. Uh, yes, th- <laughs> thanks to the miracle of video. And then you translated you it, it into the older miracle of the written word, which is another way yes. of painting pictures. Yes. Uh, yeah, because the, the, the bus wall, thing I, for, first I thought, wait, the wall's made out of buses? How many buses did they? Oh, okay. Now it makes make sense. Buses, yeah. Right, now it makes yeah. sense. I have to say that I love the setting of this novel because most vampire stories it's all urban fantasy for the most part and this does harken back to a an earlier generation of adventure and fantasy stories you may mention robert e howard in the i did the first chapter is very people who follow me on twitter may know i I do a thing where i i find old pulp covers and then i reinterpret them through captions and you sure do it's it's one of my favorite things on twitter i have to say legitimately (laughs) <laughs> I appreciate that very much. What One of the places I find these covers is a collector who's very serious about it and oftentimes will post links to the whole magazine. So I've read a ton, oh. I've read a ton of Robert E. Howard in the past year. And the first chapter definitely has that sort of linguistic muscularity in the writing that evoked it immediately. And then it went to... I, I held up from using the word sinew too many times. Yes, or, or thews. Or, uh, <laughs> yes. But then the next chapter is more conversational, and it's it's sort of a, each chapter. I get I guess it's I don't want to say games of throwing, but but it, the the perspectives change a little bit, and the language changes a little bit, which which I found refreshing because I thought okay, so it's going to be written in this kind of old time adventure patois. Well, I can get into that. I, I like those stories. No, you you kept switching it up depending upon who was the point of view character. Right, um, right. And it also had a little bit of an H. Ryder Haggard feel. N- n- Solomon's n- Mind? Uh, King Solomon's Mind, a little bit, a little bit of that yeah. lost world. And also the fact that the natives aren't condescended to as they were in a lot of the uh, the early pulp stories. Like in King Solomon's Minds, uh, several of the, the, the important heroic characters are Africans. Same here. Absolutely. That is a, a wonderful thing you've brought up. I love that you brought that up. Um, that is... Uh, <clears throat> it's something I absolutely strove for. That's why I said uh, in the intro, it's it's a story about an Africa starring Africans. I had no interest in doing a stranger in a strange land sort of a, what is this? Uh, you know, what is this? What is this? I wanted this to be someplace that felt familiar to people who knew it before it went to hell. And um, H. Ryder Haggard, uh, King Solomon's Mind. So that book is um, is old. Uh, that was written in, I believe, the 1880s. Yeah, could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty actually, sure. Actually, I think it, it came out in 1894, like, something like that, mid 18. Okay, so yeah, so right around there. So it's it's an old book. It is really difficult to find. Like the best case when you're reading something that old is it's like, well, 
it's the product of the time, you know, that that's like the defense, you know, it's like, well, you know, some of her, some stories are outright racist and it's really, it's tough. Like I can't enjoy it. And that particular story, the best character was the African prince. Mm-hmm. And he infiltrates the group under this pretense of a more typical depiction of what you would see uh, from an African-American of the day, especially in literature, which was subservient. And then you find out that the entire time, this guy was actually a prince of the lost kingdom or whatever that they're trying to get to where the mines are. And he was using them to get him there. And uh, when they got there, he he also didn't turn out to be a shitty guy. He was a good guy. He ended up liking them and and then helped them. And, you know, he, he was far and away my favorite character, but I think he was far and away the best character. So um, that is not common in old literature and old pulp stuff. And Robert E. Howard, uh, to an extent, uh, I I felt like uh, there are certain stories where I feel like he was uh, championing and uh, and stuff, which is funny because, you know, you know, he's from Texas and Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, Lovecraft, which who everybody knows was a a, a raging racist. I mean, he's from my neck of the woods. He's from uh, Rhode Island. And he he was, you know, he's tough. Luckily, the thing with with Lovecraft, he didn't work it into his writing. So I think a lot of people are more forgiving of it. But it's still, like, if you look at his personal uh, writings, uh, what he was just talking, it's it's really difficult uh, for me to get behind that guy. But, you know, with with Howard, he he had stories that starred... Uh, African-American characters. He had, uh, uh, I mean, my favorite Howard story probably is Pigeons from Hell. Did you read that one? Oh my God. I haven't thought about that story in years. I have. Yep. Great story. Yeah. And it was also an episode of uh, Thriller, uh, the Boris Karloff wannabe Twilight Zone. Oh, right. That's right. Right. Wow. Yeah. They changed it like a lot. Well, they changed the monsters. The setup is the same, but it really makes you think that they're going to make this, uh, there's this big Southern plantation. They make you think that this black girl, they really make you think that he is the one that did all the bad stuff. And, uh, in the end you find it's like, no, no, no. The bad guys are the evil plantation owners. And the, the slave girl was like the best character. So he does that a lot. And that's not something that's very common. So I love pulp, but man, I cannot stand reading stuff that's, you know, even mildly racist. It's really, I feel, I feel icky when it's like the best you can say as well, product of the time. Ugh. But Salman's Minds, not bad. Basically, I wanted to have a cast of uh, characters that were believable and not typical types, archetypes you see in these sorts of stories. This is what I will say. Um, full disclosure, I have not finished the book yet. I am only on chapter eight. That being said, I'm going to be finishing it like tomorrow, which for me, that's a big thing. And B, I've already decided to buy the next book. So Awesome. Thank you very much. That's, uh, that's a big compliment from you guys. That's great. Hunt the books down. They're on the Amazon. They're on the Kindle. The, the I'll call it by the right name, the Bone Eater King. You have a podcast of your own. Let's talk about that for a second. That's true. Okay, yeah, we have a, I have a brand new podcast. Uh, we have one episode out. Uh, the next episode actually uh, is about to come out, maybe by the time, I don't know when this Mongolian episode is going to air, but we have an episode coming out uh, on Tuesday. The podcast is called Retro Reductipus, and that is spelled R-I-E Octopus. <laughs> if, uh, if the evolution of the word ridiculous is redunculous, uh, what comes after redunculous? A soul-crushing death. <laughs> Yes, well, that well, that's what we were going for. We were trying. To, <laughs> we're like, well, you know, if if anyone's gonna make uh, Jeff have less faith in the human species, <laughs> I would I would okay. like you, to see that. 
You have been listening to the show. <laughs> I have. No, I like you guys a lot. I do. Um, but yeah, so the, the basic tagline for the podcast is uh, we celebrate all the things that made growing up awesome. You know, I'm I'm uh, 39, so most of us are in that range. Uh, I'm actually one of the younger ones. There's a couple in their 40s. And and uh, so you know, we grew up in the, the late 70s, 80s, 90s, basically. And we, we sort of like to talk about like, old video games, uh, movies, just pop culture nonsense, whatever comes to mind. And we're, we're going to see what happens. We already have, we, uh, today we recorded episode four. We do have a couple in the can, which is uh, kind of nice, but we're going to be recording uh, about once a month, I think, and releasing the episodes uh, every other Tuesday is the idea. We're on Twitter, at uh, Redoctopus. On Facebook, uh, we have a, a, a brand new Facebook group and a page and, and stuff. And uh, you can email us at redoctopus at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Or, you know, like I said, we're brand new. All right. Well, let's get to the movie. Steve, what movie did you select? I selected uh, one of my favorite movies ever, The Old Dark House, 1932 version, which is the original, which is uh, actually an adaptation of the book Benighted by J.B. Priestley, which actually just got a really awesome release last year. It was Valancourt Books. The movie is just one of my favorites. It's technically of the universal cycle it came out 1932 was the year after dracula and the frankenstein it was right in there because those movies that everybody thinks of pretty much all came out between 30 and 35 except for wolfman was like 41 and then creature was like 50 something i mean that was like way after but for some reason, everybody considers Creature to be part of that cycle, but not Old Dark House. Bill Karloff is in this movie. There's actually some some really great people in general in this movie. And oh, it was directed by James Whale, who did Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. There's a famous story uh, told by Curtis Harrington, uh, a film director in the uh, 60s and 70s, did a lot of uh, camp horror like Queen of Blood and Who Slew Auntie Rue and What's the Matter with Helen. And... As a young man, he was an enormous fan of James Whale, and he met him when he was in Paris, and it became his obsession to save the old dark house. But because uh, of a series of remakes, the rights uh, had been sold by Universal. So while they, they had the original camera negative of the 1932 version, they had no commercial right to exploit it. They couldn't show it. So it was just deteriorating in a vault somewhere. Oh. While he was working Universal, he was trying to track it down. And they said, oh, it's in a vault in New York. And he went there and he looked at it. And the first reel of the of the negative was already deteriorated to the point where they couldn't make a print from it. So he contacted the George Eastman house and said, hey, would you guys would you guys strike a new negative? And they said, well, OK, but what are the legalities of it? And so he was back and forth. And finally, Universal said, all right, you can make one print for the Museum of Modern Art. You can make one print for the Eastman house and you can make one print for us. But it, they couldn't release it for a long time because they had sold the remake rights to Columbia. Okay. I think one of the reasons it's, uh, people don't think of it as part of the universal horror cycle, even though it clearly is, is because it doesn't have a monster. It's an ugly butler. That's it. And the, the thing about it is I think Universal was so uncertain about how to sell it that at least in the print I saw, it opens up with a title card that says, just to clarify. Yep, I got this one too. Yeah. It is indeed Karloff who plays the mad butler, the same Karloff who starred as the indelible mechanical, they, they call it mecha mechanical monster in Frankenstein. And <laughs> We so, want to stop any debates right now. Right. <laughs> was his first uh, credited starring role? Yes, he was listed first in the credits. 
amazingly, even though he hasn't got a line. He he, he mumbles a lot. He mumbles. Melvin Douglas has a funny line and goes, I don't even think Welsh should sound like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love that, yeah. So it wasn't the first all-Dark House movie by by any means. I mean, there were a lot. I mean, I know, you know, The Cat and the Canary was uh, was definitely first. Um, and there were, you know, such productions following that, the category. But it is an early old dark house movie yes it's definitely it's definitely an early certainly one of the first sound ones in the mm-hmm. genre what was scary about the, this film uh first off is usually the houses are fairly nice and fairly well right maintained this house this house is clearly decaying and yeah. the family living in it is clearly decaying mm-hmm. it starts off in a in a, a prototypical way where you've got a married couple played by uh, raymond massey and Gloria Stewart, who are in the front seat of this car, it's a it's a horrible stormy night. They're bickering like crazy and go, oh, good God, this is like going to Thanksgiving with my parents. How long is this scene going to go on? And yeah. Melvin Douglas is sitting in the back seat getting drunk. And he's another sort of prototypical character. He's the World War One vet with PTSD who copes with it by making a joke of everything. And the, the character was such a cliche by 1931 that they basically lampshade it. Ernest Thysinger's Horace Femme says, oh, you're, I take it you were in the war. He goes, yes, yes, I'm one of those. I lost generation, la-di-da. Basically says, la-di-da. Right. Uh, yeah, it's like, you. Th- that's my character. You guys know exactly who I am. We don't even really need to discuss it. And, uh, right, and that's that's a, a really good example of this movie's uh, sort of uh, tongue-in-cheekness and how it, 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 it didn't fully take itself seriously, which is one of the things that I, I really loved about it. There are a lot of moments where it's just having fun. I mean, I personally love uh, horror comedies a lot when they're done well. So, and I, I think the you know the, the Cat and the Carry, the silent one, is a full on horror comedy. Mm-hmm. So to me, it goes back a long ways. But there are some people who just you know they do they do not want that that peanut butter on their anchovies. They're like no 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 does go. So, uh, you know, I, I get it, but it's not for everybody. But for me, man, I, I just that's one of the things that I love most. And I have to say in that first scene when they're driving, I, I cannot every single time I watch, I cannot get over how much water is getting in the car. My, <laughs> yep. like, like roof technology sucked back then. What the hell happened? <laughs> uh, OK, guys, I have a question. Uh, and I'm I'm actually kind of jumping ahead here now because remember mm. I have not I have not seen the film before. Okay, this was my first time watching it, and I watched it today. I have a question, and I ser- I, I this is partially a joke, but partially not. Okay, explain Roderick to me. What's oh. your What's your question? Why was the old man played by a woman? Because James um, Whale thought it would be funny. Yeah, there's no good reason for it. Okay, because that, honestly, I was on board the film until that happened, and that totally threw me out of the film. It is really weird. I know, you can always, you absolutely can tell, but I think that James Whale was really trying to pull a fast one on people, and I I think he really thought that people would notice. Um, uh, The actress who who plays Roderick, who's the the father, is uh, Elspeth uh, Dudgeon. Okay. I uh, had never heard of. Um, before but she uh she was you know pretty old at the time but they clearly they gave her aging makeup still and then they put all this fake hair and it it is you you are not fooled for a second it's like why are a lady with a mustache why why are they, why are they saying it's the dad i i'm with you it's it it's, it's a weird scene 
It's but, very, and then, and then, like in the very next scene, they referred to we spoke to him, and he said this, and I'm like, no, yeah. no, I, it's if there was if, seriously that was a that, chick. I, I know chicks. That was a chick. If that if that was supposed to be an intentional joke, I I don't get it. I mean, it truly, I was totally on board with the film until that moment. I th- I think that it does sort of add this otherworldly creep factor, and maybe perhaps that was what he was going for, but. I mean, it's like literally I, I had to once like when you first hear his her voice, I was like, wait a minute, that's a woman. And yeah. then when you finally right. see, I, I did, I had to pause the film to get right. to let my head to grasp around what was going. I'm like, yeah. this isn't they're not playing this funny. They're playing this straight. This is mm-hmm. OK. This is a uh, I can't think of her name. He's this is this is a 1930s Suspiria. OK. <laughs> One thing that's interesting about it, uh, the first time I saw the old dark house was at the American Cinematheque with a, an appreciative audience. And you get a sense if you see it with an audience of just how funny this film is. There are laughs all the way through it. And mm-hmm. people, uh, even at the time, people knew the formula. So I think people were, were thought they were a little bit ahead of the story. And I remember when it got to that scene and Roderick spoke his first lines and you could tell it was an old an old lady's voice. Issues from the the face of this aged man. The audience was brought up short. Like, what? <laughs> and I almost feel like Will did that deliberately. The character is in one scene, and then it's done. And it's not like a reveal where they pull off a mask and aha. Right. You know, it's like it's like the mother at the end of uh, Friday the Thirteenth. Was it? Yeah. No, it was just it was just very off putting to me. I think it was meant to be. Yeah, I think so too. I think it was meant to be off-putting, but you just didn't like it, and that's okay. All right. I mean, I think that that's fine. You know, I I think as a director, you make choices, and some of them just don't work. And I think that is a weird one. I wouldn't have done it because it does sort of any creep factor to me isn't worth the how much you are taken out of it by just instantly going wait, but this is clearly a woman though. I kind of I kind of disagree for one reason. Because the, okay. the the scene is an info dump, it's it's a purely expository scene. Uh, Roderick's there to set up to set up the danger of Saul, the eldest son that locked up in the the top floor. And one thing about the, about this film, it's completely stage bound. Uh, oh yeah, but yes. it's but it's not stagey because it's so theatrical. And I think it was a necessary it's it was an obligatory scene. The the information had to be gotten out. They they had to meet the father because they talked about him. It, he was uh, Chekhov's dad. Right. And I think that just that may have just irritated Whale a bit. They they will ask him questions and he will feebly feed them necessary information to, so we can kick off the third act. And instead he threw this curveball. Yeah. You know, for, for whatever reason, it did it did it it turned it from an info dump scene to a what the fuck was that? Yeah. So it is a scene you remember, though, and we're talking about it. So that's funny. Uh, no, that is no, that is very, very true. I mean, I, that's I did the first I, thing you bring it up. Pause the film. I sat there and I'm like, I'm, I'm so very confused right now. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I love about this movie is, as I say, it takes place mostly in one room, but there's a ton of setups. Yes. And it feels like it breathes. It feels like it moves around, even though you, you don't see that much of the house. In fact, I remember the first time I saw it and they step into the, the great room of the old house and they're, they're talking to um, 
uh, Ernest Isaacer, and the sister shows up, uh, looks looks down from the the mezzanine, and no bed. Yeah, no, no kids. Yeah, exactly. And then they see her. What? What? And of course, she's deaf, so she can't hear. So she has to. We watch her go around the the length of the mezzanine, down one flight of stairs, down the other flight of stairs, and across the room. And I go, Oh, is it going to be like this? Is is it going? Are, are we going to just pad the film with a bunch of people going up and down stairs and crossing rooms? Is it really going to be like that? Be like yeah. a film to play? And it wasn't. It was that one scene no. that all, yep. that sets yeah. it up, and then that was the end. From yeah. from then on, it's a, it's medium shots and close ups and. And uh, in fact, there's almost too many cuts. That scene where uh, Melvin Douglas and Lillian Bond, the showgirl, are, are sitting in the car in the garage uh, getting drunk and they're clicking with each other. And there's like a series of close ups of Melvin Douglas, almost like jump cuts. Hold hold on for a second. Just let him get his line out. Did they say something dirty in here and then it got ineptly edited for the by the censors? So much of it is so masterfully edited. Yeah. And then there's a few There's also some closer. jump cuts in yeah, in another scene too when um it's one of my favorite scenes actually. It's when the sister Rebecca is alone when uh Gloria Stewart is changing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very uh innocent and innocuous and you know, this lady's creepy, but then it gets it crosses a line. And it's like she puts her hand on her, and yep. she's like, "This is fine stuff too, but did it rot too?" And and he and she, and she is like over the line. And uh, there's a there's a bunch of uh, there's some quick cuts of her laughing, and they show the mirror reflection, and the mirror is all distorted. And it's granted, it's not in enough shots to really be a motif, but that scene still is one of the ones that I think was the most effective because to me, there's only two scenes in the entire movie that are truly like scary and or i don't know if scary is the right word but hence horrifying you don't know what's going to happen that's one of them and then the last one's the end the when uh, brother saul finally makes his appearance which is easily my favorite dramatic scene in the movie i i that whole sequence with him and melvin douglas is amazing i think that 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 is actually i gotta say i mean this is carrying on from uh the vampire bat comment tariff that we did way way back in the day but uh i've become quite the fan of melvin douglas I love Melvin Douglas. He, I really, I yeah. loved him in the Vampire Bat, and I actually really liked him up until we got his backstory. But like the whole first beginning of the movie, I felt like there was just something going on behind his eyes, and I wanted to know what was happening. Melvin Douglas yeah. has a lot of charisma and energy, and he he knows how to use the camera without ever acknowledging the camera. Very he, true. And he draws the eye without trying to grab focus. He was a very natural actor. For 1931. Yes. Yeah. And we have to mention, this is the one little bit of research I did. This was Charles Lawton's first movie. Was it? Yes. Wow. It was his first movie? At least, or, or at least according to the, uh, I was looking up, up at the, uh, of course this was Wikipedia, but they said it was his first something. Maybe his first American film? Um, it, um, it's definitely not his first movie according to IMDb. It, it, okay. A couple shorts, but uh, it looks like it's his fourth actual film. But okay. yeah, still, fourth is—I mean, it's it's pretty early. But yeah, I mean, oh my God, we can't go on and not mention Charles Lawton. Just further cementing every every single movie I see him in. I mean, he's like the ultimate character actor, right? I mean, he just every single time he's 100 percent different. What I love in this movie is his performance is is so cut in half because the first few scenes where he's this boisterous annoying obnoxious way too loud he's supposed to be so at first i thought this character is supposed to be funny but the jokes aren't landing the humor's not landing it's not it's not well done this is just obnoxious 
And then you learn when he quiets down and gives you his backstory. Yes. It's just his cover. He's not really like that. He just kind of adopts that persona because that's easier for people to accept. And he's actually this quiet, tortured, sort of unhappy man. But he portrays this rich, loving life sort of guy. And, and he's just louder and bigger than life. And and so that made it okay for me. And this the first uh, Lawton film I actually saw. Oh, really? I, I noticed that when he plays more working class characters, he, he has a lot of energy. To, to him, I guess that's, that's that requires an, a, a sort of boisterous, earthy touch. But he, he did something with his accent that I liked because, again, it, it keeps you guessing. And I don't know if this is something that, that uh, resonated with American audiences in 1932. But when he comes in and he introduces himself as Sir William Porterhouse, and then he has this this working class Best name accent. in the movie. Yes. He has this working class accent. You think, okay, clearly he's not some baronet. Uh, yeah. he, he's some guy who's probably a con man or a criminal or something. And then, then you, as it goes on, you realize he's a guy who basically made a lot of money out of spite and probably bought his way onto the New Year's honors list and may in fact be Sir William. It's the first time you meet somebody in this film you really don't know what to make of them. And in right. a lot of cases, they're not exactly who you think they are at first. They, they, they make a lot right. of deceptive first impression. I also love how, you know, his, uh, he has a very atypical relationship with uh, the Lillian Bond character, Gladys. You know, you assume that they're together and then you realize, okay, A, she's actually just part of his facade. She's just part of his show. But B, he's not a piece of crap character. He actually cares about her just not romantically so that's really worth mentioning that's very different like i can't think of another two characters that that was true for and then when she eventually ends up from melvin douglas she sort of has they have the scene where they sort of ask his permission just to be nice and he's like oh well you know, you know yeah he's he's cool and handsome and well, all right, all right, I'm behind it. You twisted my arm. Once you hear the story about his wife, it completely, it turns you 180 degrees on how you feel about the character. And it, it's interesting how economical they are with the character brushstrokes and how effective they are with just a few words here and there. I mean, everybody gets a little moment. Rebecca gets a few uh, to, to reinforce her, her religious perversity. And then it turns into that twisted moment with Gloria Stewart. Okay, she may actually be the worst person here. And then you meet Saul. And, and the great thing about Saul is you're thinking, okay, okay, this guy can't be a threat. Even if he's insane, he's not a threat to Melvin Douglas. And then the way the scene plays out, it, he just is. Like, so fast. He has <laughs> a good 10 seconds and you're like, oh, this poor guy. Everybody else is crazy. Mm -hmm. Just like, and then boom, he says something, and you're like, oh shit. Uh, but that uh, that performance, that guy, his name is uh, Rember Wills, is the actor who played Saul. And um, from uh, I, I looked at looked at it, I looked into it once, and I, I'm pretty sure he was not really much of a movie actor. I think he was only, yeah, only in six things. Mostly a, a stage performer, and uh, but he, he was just amazing in that. I thought. But my my favorite actor, though, by far in this film is Thesiger. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I love Horace Fenn so friggin' much. <laughs> like, he, like at all times, I'm delighted by Horace Fenn. Like he is so 
freaking funny. And to the point where you introduced me as the heavy metal maestro or whatever you, whatever you said, uh, my band, Enchanted Exile, uh, on our second album, we have a song called On Widow's Hill. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it is our, our tribute to old Dark House movies. And uh, actually used the clip where he says, it's only gin, you know. Only Jin. I love, that's in the song because I, I at all times I'm adore him. He's just so funny. And my I think the funniest scene because this is one of those very few movies that I have such trouble picking out my favorite scenes. Like I just love them all. So for funny, I love I love the dinner table roast beef where he's just like pushing potatoes on everybody. Yes. <laughs> like have a potato. Have a potato. So he says it three times, but the last time he says it is to shut up Lawton. Yep. He's, and he's going on and on and on and on and on. And he just, out of nowhere, it's that cigar. He's like, have a potato. It's so good. And he does. He takes the potato and he shuts up. And then there's a great visual joke where they're, everyone is eating. And poor uh, Raymond Massey is just sitting there picking these black eyes out of his potato. Just one after another. I've never noticed that. Oh yeah. Yep. Like, yep. Yep. That's really makes you feel a little sorry for him, even after he was, even though he was a dick in the car. He was the the least of the characters. He's the most conventional. He's the guy who who turns out to be exactly who you think he's going to be. <laughs> true. That's true. Um, my favorite favorite Thesser moment, though, and I will leave it at that. The the best thing for me is when they go upstairs and they're looking for the lamp because oh, lead him into it. And he's like, he's like so scared to go upstairs in his own friggin' house. He's like, I don't know where it is. And she's like, yes, you do. It's up on the table. He's like, oh, well, I shouldn't be able to carry it down by myself. She's like, what are you talking about? It's just a lamp. Then he, he oh, oh, it was Raymond. That's like Raymond's, uh, Raymond Massey's big scene I, in my mind is when he has to go upstairs with him to get the lamp. And he's like, halfway up, Desiger stops. He's like, why should we go? Why should we get the lamp if we don't want to? And, and Massey's like, oh, I. I want to. What's what's the problem? Like, let's just go get the lamp. Like, like, oh well. Do you want to see my room? My room's right here. <laughs> he's like, do you want to see my room? He's just like a little kid. Yeah. And, and then he's like, yeah. Um, peace out. He just pieces out for the rest of the whole movie. Mm-hmm. He's like, I, I can't deal. I'm too scared. I can't go up one more flight of stairs. I'm just gonna be in my room for the rest of the movie. <laughs> Kills me. Big nose and the nostrils. He's like, he looks like he should be scared all the time. He does. Yeah. And, and the, the makeup, the makeup clearly uh, emphasizes that it gave him those sunken eyes. And the makeup came and went. Yes, there scenes are just—it's just not there. Yeah, I was wondering if that was the print, if that was the lighting, or what. But the makeup is is um, also, uh, I got to say, Karloff's makeup is terrible. I don't know who it did is. it, but it's like when when um, Raymond Massey punches him, I expected that putty nose. To just transfer to his fist, like like silly putty on a comics page. Huh. You know, it, lo- it looks like he just like, lost a fight with a bobcat that morning. Yeah, Jack Pierce was obviously not available for this one. For sure, no, he d- he didn't do this one. So so Jeff, I I know from listening to uh, some of your your mic stuff that you guys, you and uh, what his real name is Walter, not you and Scott, are not fans of. The Universal Horror Movies, is that correct? I, I appreciate them for what they are and what they did, but no, I am not a fan of them. Right, so so that's interesting. So, so far we've been kind of gushing and it's just been like a love session here. Uh, 
What did you think of the movie? Except for Roderick and the ending, which I can't lie, I hated the ending. I hated the ending so bad, that little kissy face fade out. Oh, that just pissed me off. But except for Roderick and that final shot, I adored the film. Oh, great. I absolutely know. I thought it did exactly what it was supposed to do. You guys have been giving all the whale love. So I'm like, yeah, you're pretty much saying everything I would say anyway. No, I absolutely adored it. Just except for those two things. Fair enough. Yeah, when it got to that last shot, I was like, no, no, really, no. Oh, damn it. But then that's typical of the time period. So I'm like, all right, take it as is. Typical of the time period. But as Scott said earlier, it's it's not super typical for an old Dark House movie where you do expect everybody to have been killed off by the end, except for maybe two characters. One guy and one girl, of course. No, 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 that is no, that that is very true. I was actually kind of impressed with the fact I'm like, okay, everybody, everybody survived. This is kind of neat. But actually, this kind of ties into and I'm going to bring it around here to the fascinating, irritating thing. Okay. And um, I actually want to start because this actually talks about something that I really liked about the film. My most fascinating thing about the movie kind of ties into I have a thing about old movies, especially from like the early days, because, as you know, a lot of people came from the theater and they have very, how shall we put it, overly dramatic interpretations of lines. And I love seeing subtlety in old movies. And there was some subtle acting going on. But that's what James Whale has subtlety in his films. But like I said, like seeing the stuff that was going on behind um, or wanting to know what was going on behind um, what's his name's eyes. There was little looks between the 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 femme brother and sister I, i'm horrible with names but i mean just little little touches little character things that weren't character things that i just absolutely adored and there was so much storytelling that wasn't expositional dump except for that scene that i really really liked how the story and the character the, the background information was told for that time period i thought that was exceptionally well done irritating thing the last shot I'm not even going to say the Roderick thing because that was definitely more of a what the fuck, but that last shot, that just pissed me off. (laughs) All right. Okay. Steve, what's your uh, most fascinating and most irritating thing about the film? I do love what care Wales uh, had with uh, the dinner uh, scene. Like, it's so (laughs) exciting. And it's just, it sort of just fascinates me because it's like, why is he so concerned? Because, like, characters are introduced into the movie in the middle of the dinner, and then the dinner continues. A lot in steps, and he's like, oh, roast beef, oh, no, nothing like roast beef for a man. Like, you know, he's just like, uh, you know, and then he joins the final half a potato. And, and there, there are also, like, the character moments, that you, like the little visible character moments that you're saying, Jeff, like, I loved the, the only time... <laughs> That we, because essentially Rebecca Femme is just a raw nerve the entire time. She's just a, a, a giant grump the entire time. And uh, in that scene, she's like, she friggin' loves onions. She loves pickled onions. <laughs> They're passing yep. the onions yep. around yep. like a jar of pickled onions. And she's like, one, two, three, four, five, six. She's like piling on the pickled onions. And she has this very content, I don't want to go as far as say happy. Like a very content, basically almost almost cute look. The cutest you look you'll find on her face is in that moment where she's like, "Oh, oh, oh, pickled onions. This is my happy place. This is it." And they're the and only the, things you see her eat. She doesn't touch anything else on no, her plate. She doesn't, have the, she doesn't have the beef. Oh, that's funny. But I don't know. There, there's a lot to that scene. There's a lot, and like you know, I didn't notice the the thing with the. 
the guy picking off the the black eyes of his potatoes. That's that's hilarious. And maybe that's why he's pushing the potatoes so strong. You know, it's like, oh god, the, the fish is push the fish. You know, it's it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna be questionable tomorrow. So yeah, I guess I guess I just love that that whole the whole thing sequence is just very funny and weird and very long for a seventy minute movie. It probably takes like ten minutes. Irritating. I don't know. Um, I'm not honestly irritated by all that much in the movie. Um, it does. I, I mean, I guess I guess I I agree with Jeff though. That the, the very end of it is not only cliche and cheese ball and it and stuff. It, it's it's so abrupt that after yep. such a heavy, well acted, well put together roller coaster of a, of a climax with with Saul, uh, because this is a movie that is primarily a, a comedy really i mean it's 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 definitely not there's not a lot of horror in it there's a couple creepy scenes but you know it's a mystery you can say mystery i mean it's definitely there's intrigue you're wondering what's going on but it's primarily a comedy but that scene is tense that final scene with the brothers is, is in my mind just perfect i just love it so much so it does sort of it is undercut by the cheese ball fade out happy couple ending, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and piggyback on on that one. Um, the final the final couple shots are not good. Okay, it it didn't it didn't ruin the film for me, but I I have to agree with you guys. It it was not worthy of the rest of the movie. Yeah, um, but you know you you yeah. gotta you gotta get off the screen somehow. So I think a lot f- of those old movies they they end on a dime. They really yeah. do. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's like it's just that's it. I mean that that was the old. Joe Bob Briggs thing about how nowadays they they really drag out the ending of a horror movie, but back then, you know, monsters dead, movie's over. Beast of Twenty Thousand Fathoms falls dead behind the um, roller coaster, and the credits roll. That's it. You know, none of this. Oh, yeah. is it going to come back? Is it going to burst out of the the grave? Nope, nope. Monsters dead, movie's over. I just watched recently uh, uh, again the Monolith Monsters. Ha! Right. You guys ever seen that one? Yes. They end the path of the, these towering crystal towers, and and they're like right in front of them, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, that seems like it." Roll credits. It's like what? <laughs> so for me, I would say the fascinating thing about this movie is what the hell is it? Is it a comedy? Is it a horror movie? Is it that rarest of birds, an actual fusion of the two? I can't think of many horror comedies that do as good a job as this one does of being both deeply unsettling and funny while not basing the comedy on a parody of the genre. I mean, so many horror comedies poke fun at the tropes of of horror movies. And while there's a teeny bit of this, most of the comedy is character-based. As opposed to like, oh, a moving staircase used for, or, you know, portraits with moving eyes. Like, they're not making fun of specific tropes as much. Right. It's not, uh, you know, it's not like uh, Larry Blamire's Dark and Stormy Night. It, it, it's a movie that actually one of the most quietly perverse movies, because it, when, when you think about what goes on in that house when these strangers aren't there, what are their daily lives like? Usually I don't wonder that in Haunted House or Old Dark House movies. This I really would kind of like to wonder, why is Horace dressed to the nines? On just like an average stormy Tuesday night, <laughs> you know, Rebecca's yeah. not. She's just yeah. she's just you know walking around in a shawl. But he's he's just a fancy lad. That's all there is I to it. I guess he's, just, he's a fancy lad, and he just never got over it, and he never leaves the house. I mean, 
Yeah, I I do think it, it's fascinating to 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 wonder about like what their daily life is because you know that man all year they probably only see each other, mm-hmm. and and they're they're just so sick of each other and it's so funny, um, but oh my god, they, Rebecca is just so abrasive at all times. It's just unbelievably ridiculous. I mean, they they really you're right. All the human character base, like her, her and there are. A number of funny, a number of running tags, like her no beds thing. No beds. She says that like ten times or something, and it's always funny. And then they kind of they they sort of like leave it for a while, and then she has a no beds like later on. She says it one more time, <laughs> and then the potato have a potato. Um, hashtag have a potato, everybody. Yep. Uh, let's, that, let's let's, let's get trend. that trending. Yep. Hashtag have a potato. Um, and stuff but yeah i mean there, there's a number of parts that, that are like it's so well done it's so self-aware and it's like masterful comedy on the levels that it was trying to be yeah you know? exactly and, and what what fascinates me is that uh rebecca is funny and then becomes genuinely creepy and off-putting in the scene with Gloria oh, Stewart. Yeah. and and her oh, little yeah. her, her little repetitive laugh and those jump cuts which are, are mm-hmm. which thinking about it now I, I believe they're purely to unsettle the audience and give them a, like a vaguely queasy sense of vertigo. And then she goes back to being funny later to the point where they can cut to her looking out the window, huffily at the end of the movie after the storm has passed. And it's funny. It's like, yeah, weren't you creeping me the hell out like 22 minutes ago? How are yeah. they, how is he doing that? But part of it is that just, it moves so fast. And then stuff just gets mentioned and never brought up again, but it doesn't feel like, a um a loose end it feels more like the kind of thing that happens in life and you just don't get a chance to pursue it and then your whole life you wonder wait when he's was he real because when horace just says what would you say if i told you i i wanted by the police uh and and then we, we never hear that story we never know was he is he is he a murderer and he can't he can't leave the house or is he ashamed of the fact that he's too scared to go outside the house and wants them to think there's some cool butch reason why he can't? <laughs> well, I don't know if Thessiger was ever going to pull off butch, but um, maybe he was alluding to his brother. Maybe that was uh, supposedly a uh, in allusion to the murderer brother. Right. Well, oh, oh the sister, the, the sister who supposedly fell off the horse. No, yeah. no, no. The, the Saul. Well, well, yeah, but Saul says Saul says they they killed they killed their sister. He tells uh, yeah, Douglas. He, he, he's an unreliable narrator. You can't believe anything he says. Right. Well, you can't believe really. You can't believe anything. Anything anyone. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Which he, which is part of the deal. Annoying. There isn't really much that annoys me about this film because it it moves too quickly. There, there's no time to right. to really get irritated. I guess the only thing that bothers me a little bit is they make such a big deal when uh, the Wavertons. Uh, Gloria Stewart and Raymond Massey and Melvin Douglas's Penderill show up and say, look, we can't go forward. We can't go back. There's There's been a rock slide. The road is closed off. Whatever. We're, we're trapped. And then half an hour later, Charles More Lawton people. and Lillian Bond show up and go, I thought we're, the house was cut off. Where did you come from? Fair enough. That's very true. That's one hanging thread. But I really couldn't care less because there's so much vivid strangeness in the foreground that I don't really care. Um, I do think this is about as perfect of a movie as I've seen technically, but that doesn't mean it's really, truly perfect. But, you know, I like plenty of terrible movies. So like, well, that's them. 
For somebody who's written a book about terrible movies, I am probably surprising. I got for Christmas, by the way. My lovely wife uh, gave me a copy of your book for Christmas. <laughs> I, I hope you enjoy it. I've been, I've been reading it. It's it's really fun. It's a quick read. I love just picking up a couple pages and and uh, going through a few movies. It's great. Yeah, I'm told it's a good bathroom book for that reason. <laughs> I'm surprisingly forgiving of a lot of bad movies because all a movie has to do is give me one or two reasons to like it. And I will forgive a ton of plot problems, structural issues, a few suspect performances here and there because I'm a movie fan. I want to, I go into any movie wanting to like it. I don't, Name. I don't root for failure ever. And this, this movie gives you so much to like that I really have to scramble to find anything to, to cavil about. It's one of a kind, really, as much as it's a part of a continuum of a genre, it really stands alone. There's no other old dark. You might say, well, the Bob Hope version is funny or this, but there's no movie that is both funny and deeply disturbing at the same time, the way this movie is. I think we've beaten this horse to death and beyond. It's now a rich, creamy horse paste and ready for market. So on behalf of Jeff, who had to leave us abruptly, in keeping with the way this movie ended. I just want to say thanks to our guest, Steve Van Sampson, for coming on and talking about The Old Dark House, and especially for suggesting a really good movie, much better than the kind of film fair Jeff and I usually subject ourselves to. So thanks very much, Steve. Thank you so much for having me on and, and letting me talk about my book. Happy you enjoyed it, and hope you enjoy the ending too. <laughs> and you too. Thanks for coming on, and we, and we hope we can have you back soon.